We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. I I keep going back to that article Pullman wrote about C.S. Lewis and how and how he described C.S. Lewis, like the Chronicles of Narnia, as misogynistic and specifically describes them as like the most dangerous books in existence or something like that. And I was just thinking about how in a lot of ways, the kind of the gender roles in this book are very traditional. So you have Mm -hmm. Mrs. Coulter say that line about how we should have gotten married, right? You have Lyra becoming more and more submissive. You have Will becoming more and more manly, which leads to the absurd comical moment at the end when Will and Lyra meet Mary Malone in the Malefa world and Mary hugs the <laughs> out of Lyra and she's about to hug Will, but then stops and be like, oh, I might affront his masculinity. Let me just shake his hand instead. And it's just like, give the fucker. A hug. And so you have things like that. I would say that Philip's gender ideology, for lack of a better term, is more dangerous than C.S. Lewis's. Because with C.S. Lewis, he is unabashedly traditional. He doesn't act otherwise. Philip Pullman is a sexist acting like he's progressive. And that's where the the sexual politics in this book, I think, get really weird because on the one hand, he's trying to be sex positive, but at the same time, he's doing this weird slut shaming against Mrs. Coulter for using her power of sexual intrigue to manipulate people. But you don't see that same criticism aimed at Asriel, who we are told explicitly has had sex <laughs> With multiple people. <laughs> he he f***s a witch into getting her whole clan on his side. Exactly. Which... Oh, Asriel. And it's like, yeah, again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with no, Asriel no. f***ing around. But the same, there's nothing wrong with Mrs. Coulter f***ing around. But this book seems to be indicating that there, uh, actually, there kind of is a problem with Mrs. Coulter f***ing around. The politics are weird and uncomfortable, and he's taking pot shots at certain groups, but in taking pot shots at other people, it seems like he's not really reflecting on his own shortcomings as a person. And then you get those weird moments like, so it's okay for Mary Malone to tell this sexually charged story to 12-year-olds? Why is that okay? Versus other weird sexual moments that he's criticizing look i'm not i don't want to conflate that what mary malone is doing in this book is pedophilia or anywhere close to doing that obviously pedophilia is just like the most evil thing you can do but it's still just weird that it's apparently okay for mary to tell like i said this sexually charged story to two preteens that then lead them to having sex, and she's championed for that in the role of the serpent, 
but I just that's weird, right? I mean, I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. To be fair, I don't think Mary's story is like super I think it's fine. <laughs> like and I think that honestly like that is one part where I'm like, yeah, it'd be nice if our culture just like was more honest about like Mhm. Yeah, stig- destigmatizing, not making it sound to children like this big giant taboo thing. I think Mary and Lyra having that conversation, or yeah, Mary and Will, or like, yeah, whatever. It's fine. I, I'm not bothered by that moment. I'm bothered by it in that, like, quite frankly, it's just like, the temptation scene is always going to be, well, should always be the most interesting scene in any depiction of Genesis. That's an interesting <laughs> conversation. Like, even the serpent, like, let's go. But like, this is the most boring version of that I've ever seen in my life. I know. It's a really bad scene of temptation, so I'm bothered by it in that way, but, I, but I'm but i not uh, bothered by it in the sense that you're talking about, because I do think, yeah, she, like, literally goes into it being like, all right, let's tell them stories. Let's just, she's had this experience with, like, seeing the dead people come out, and the dead people were like, tell them stories, and she's like, okay, I'm just going to tell them stories. And they're asking her about things, so it's like, you know, I think it's nice that they have an authority figure that they can hear about mm-hmm. sex from in a positive way. And she's not. But, I mean, we've already brought up the issues with her her depiction of sex. But, yeah, no, I mean, it's just not. <laughs> it's when you, you contrast Mary Malone with this Coulter and with the other depictions that it becomes this bigger issue. It, it's like we said, it's. If it's just one instance, then it's like, that's fine. But when it's all compounding on each other, it's it's more complicated. Uh, two, because I forgot to mention this part about the Mrs. Coulter as real scene. I believe it is said or implied that because they are jumping into this abyss thing, Azrael, Mrs. Coulter, and Metatron are not going to dissolve into the universe like all the other dead people. They're yeah. just going to be wiped from existence. So they're going to be, like, fully destroyed, made into nothing. Which, like, heightens their sacrifice for their daughter. I do really like, in some ways, I know you said you didn't like the weirdness of the the heel turn for Mrs. Coulter, but I do think that's actually been somewhat set up. I don't like how the end of the subtle knife for multiple characters does not actually lead into their plot arcs for this book. Because, like, the end of the subtle knife, she's like, I guess I have to kill my daughter. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, Will's like, I guess I'm going to Lord Azrael. And I was like, interesting that he's abandoning Lyra. And then this book, both of them start in, like, just totally different places. And like you said, we don't see on screen them making that change, which, uh, again, would point to, I would then assume that Philip Holman did not know what he was doing if he ended the second book like that and started the third one like this. But whatever, we'll leave that for now. But, like, Lord Azrael and Mrs. Coulter's arc of, like, being really selfish people who, like, only do the bare minimum to care about their daughter, but then ultimately making this huge sacrifice and working together to protect her is an interesting good one. And I think one of the more coherent character arcs in the series. But the fact that, like, they must be (laughs) annihilated, like, Miss Coulter is fully eradicated from existence. (laughs) (laughs) i'm pro the sacrifice but i'm also like think it's kind of um 
interesting that Philip Pullman, again, took the most... The woman who uses her sexuality. The woman that we might think of as, like, a, if we're looking at archetypes, like a Lilith-type figure. Mm. She's got to just be completely demolished. Even if she does go out heroically. And I, I stand by that I really like how that whole arc ends. I like their little fight with Metatron. I like the two of them coming together to get their shit done. But that doesn't mean I don't see some of the problematic elements of it. Although, God, that moment, I will say, okay, we've given Philip Pullman shit for his action. And there are multiple scenes in this book that prove that he's not really good at action. <laughs> but that scene, there's this moment where, like, Mrs. Coulter is able to, like, grab onto Metatron and pull back his head for, like, Lord Azrael's Snow Leopard Demon's jaws to, like, come around his throat. I was like, yes, go! <laughs> go off! It was great. Violence makes me feel comfortable. And then the last moment where, like, Azrael's been, like, bashed on the head. He's died, but he's clinging to Metatron. Metatron's trying to fly out and escape. And it looks like Azrael's gonna drop into the pit and Metatron's gonna get away. And, like, Mrs. Coulter's, like, runs off and like tackles them in the air to pull all three of them down. I was like, yes. <laughs> and this scene happens like a hundred pages from the end. Oh yeah. I was like, no, they're gone for the rest of the book. What am I going to do? But like that scene, their conversation where they, it becomes clear like that they actually do care about each other and about Lyra in their own very weird, very twisted way. And quite frankly, I do really like the scene of Mrs. Coulter going up to Metatron land and tricking him. Not necessarily the sex bit, but the part where, like, she's convinced, convincing him that she's willing to betray Azrael and everyone. And in order to do this, she knows that he's going to look at her and her soul and truly see her. And she's able to deceive him with her very being. That because she has been so cruel, so selfish, that he cannot believe that she would do one good thing. That moment of her being like fully able to utilize and realize what a horrible person she is and like do this one thing is like really incredible. And I wish the sex bit had just been left out entirely because I think that that moment is so great. And I am so excited to see that moment in the TV series. Hopefully they'll kill it. But like, ah, oh, those are some great moments. They're so good. <laughs> Both of them. And there, there's multiple moments too in this book. Sorry. I just, I have to rave about this because this is no, like the one part of the book I really, really liked. And so I must go off. Um, <laughs> there's also multiple moments in this book where I got what I'd been wanting, where like we've seen in previous books flashes of them in Lyra. And then in multiple points in this book, Philip Pullman says he shows Mrs. Coulter and like references her lying as Lyra-esque, you know? He's like, you see... Lyra and Mrs. Coulter and you get a couple of modes where you also have like Lord Asriel did this and it was just like his daughter yeah and like you get to see the parts of them that are in Lyra but unfortunately those parts of Lyra are getting disappeared because uh, Philip Woman's like mm, she can't have these anymore like the interesting complicated parts of her must go but like I did love getting to see Lyra and what I will think of as true Lyra in them and then getting to see them yeah, come to the realization of actually giving a shit about something and that maybe they made some mistakes and doing this one good thing for their daughter. I really, 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 really loved their arcs. Yeah. 
I hear you in theory. I, I think that's great. But it's Philip Pullman, unfortunately, writing this book. And it's just so bogged down in so much other bullshit. <laughs> what really rubbed me the wrong way in that scene is just how sappy Mrs. Coulter gets. It bugs me because it doesn't read like Mrs. Coulter anymore. And that's where the sort of about face had me for a loop because it's like, this doesn't sound like her. Also because you don't have Asriel doing a big old monologue, pouring out his heart for his daughter, being like, yes, mm. I'm doing this for my daughter. I loved her. I loved her this whole time. She was the only one for me. Also, there's some other parts that, that just didn't work in the scene for me. Specifically, why Metatron had to be the one killed. Like, it seems... These two humans are having a pretty good, are doing pretty well fighting this guy. Like, he doesn't really seem like that huge of a threat. And it just isn't really clear to me why Metatron has to be stopped or else everything is doomed. So it just felt like an empty conflict that within the scene mm -hmm. in a vacuum, it's cool. But, uh... There's nothing that resonates beyond. So when they make their sacrifice, it's like, well, it's the least they could do, I guess. It's just like, <laughs> I just, right. I don't know why I was supposed to care, but I guess I should be sad yeah. that you two sacrificed yourselves for Lyra. But I just don't care. No, I mean, I totally agree with your point. Wait, go on. Oh, no, I, I, just, I just wanted to comment on the other thing about how because I, I didn't even think about how the weird optics of having Mrs. Coulter be the one cast into the pit, which is true, because I do think there's there's a <sighs> Pullman wants a really tidy ending for this book and this series. And the ending is so, so clean, which is a problem. Everything returns to a kind of weird status quo where it feels like nothing has really changed in the world mm. and you get these weird admissions that you start to see the cracks in it and I think that's where Mrs. Coulter being the one to sacrifice herself and Asriel being the one to sacrifice himself these kind of outlier characters who are going to be too challenging to the status quo they have to be the ones to go and you have this one line it's a throwaway line and I hate it I hate it so much <laughs> at the very end where it's explaining how the magisterium during the time that Lyra was away, it had imposed these kind of draconian laws, but it's all good now because the liberal factions of the magisterium have taken over. And I'm over here thinking like, does Pullman really think that liberals can't be pedophiles? Like, is that what he's really saying? That is remarkably gullible. If that's what he actually thinks. And he thinks that if just liberals took over the church, then everything's okay. No. What? No. He's like a classic white upper class liberal where mm. he'll say all the right things that he needs to say. But when you really push him on it and when you really make him consider what a world that embraces his liberal politics would look like, I think he would start pushing back. And that's where you kind of see it with Mrs. Coulter, where 
Mrs. Coulter is too sexual. She embraces her sexuality too much. And that's uncomfortable. That would force me as a man to reckon with my own sexuality in ways that would be uncomfortable for me. Because that's the thing. Like, there's very much a vibe in this book of a boys will be boys kind of attitude. Because every time Mrs. Coulter tries to seduce somebody, it happens without a hitch. <laughs> it still works. And that's just... Like, there's this weird moment at the beginning of the book when Will and Mrs. Coulter meet. Yes. <laughs> right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like yeah, I, weird mm -hmm. Stacy's mom's vibes? Yeah. Okay, wait. Oh, wait, I want to respond to something. Can we put a pin in the Will and Mrs. Coulter thing to come yes. back to after I respond to the first bit of what you said? Because I, I, there's something. I want to talk about Will, Mrs. Coulter, and his mom, and Lyra, and the knife. But let's put a pin in that, come back to it after I talk about, I think that, like, you talked about, like, how the whole Metatronton thing doesn't really seem that important, and, like, in the grand scheme of things, it happens 100 pages before the end of the book. It, there's this big sacrifice that feels like it should mean something, but it doesn't actually, as far as we can tell, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that kind of ties in to something I think you talked about in Subtle Knife Times, about, like... I don't think if Philip Pullman does a very good job of setting up the opposition and enemies, like the magisterium is kind of supposed to be the bad guy slash, I guess, the kingdom of heaven, which they're linked. The magisterium is an operative of the kingdom of heaven, mm -hmm. which is run by the regent. So Metatron should be the big bad. So like within that context, Azrael and Mrs. Coulter taking him out is like amazing. But like he doesn't actually really establish that enough. And he doesn't really, like like you said, we don't really know what has changed with Metatron gone. We don't know. We can't tell. So I think that, like, it would have been so interesting. Like, I can't help thinking of the new She-Ra series, She-Ra, Princesses of Power, excellent animated <laughs> series that everyone should watch. I'm not kidding. With it's the great. worst theme no, song The ever. theme song is a very, like, 80s power ballad, girl power type song. <laughs> I really enjoy it. It is a little camp. But the series itself is really great. But one of the things they did very smartly, I thought, in rebooting the 80s cartoon is that, like, the bad guys are called the Horde in the series. And it can feel like, you know, there's a big guy at the head, but, like, he doesn't interact much with our main characters. So it's really hard to, like, really feel that opposition. And, like, the conflict would be hard if we just had, like, the big bad guy at the head and then our main character, She-Ra. You know, like, then it feels very kind of distant and impersonal. But they're very smart in that they have... Mm -hmm. The main character in the first episode, she starts out with the Horde, and she has a best friend in the Horde, Katra. They have life plans together, they've grown up together, they're very close, like, they're truly, and we get to see their friendship. And then our main character discovers everything that she thought she knew about the Horde is wrong, and decides to go over to the forces of good. And in doing so, abandons Katra. So Katra is totally hurt by this decision, and ends up being the main antagonistic force in the Horde. And becomes that representative and it adds this personal element that I think is so important because it feels like it's not just good versus evil, but we have this representative of the evil side that is intimately tied to our main character. And like, there's that conflict there that is so much more interesting and fascinating because it has more than just like, you're bad and I've got to defeat you. It's like, you are working for the side of bad, but you are also my best friend who I grew up with. 
and I love? And like, how do I deal with that? How do I reckon that set? Philip Pullman <laughs> had the opportunity to do that <laughs> in this series. And we talked about this before too. If Mrs. Coulter had really been set up as the representative of the magisterium, and it had really been her working against Lyra, and even you could have it be three-sided, like have Lord Azrael be this other force, and maybe we don't know what side he's going with, and he's like doing things that help here, but things that hurt here, and, and really had it be about this conflict between mother, daughter, father, like, and then had it resolve in, you know, Mrs. Coulter betraying the Magisterium and her and Azrael joining forces to take out Metatron, who we had been introduced to earlier, like through dynamics with Mrs. Coulter, then had that be like, yeah, more of the climax and like bring that further into the book and have that have more significance and importance. Then it would be not only is she taking out Metatron, the head honcho, but she, Mrs. Coulter, who has been the main antagonist is now sacrificing herself for her daughter and changing things, then it feels so much more significant. It feels so much more weighty. Mm. You really feel that that sacrifice and you really feel like something's happened because now what we have seen as the main antagonistic force has done a face turn and now she's she's worked for the side of good to eliminate essentially two forces of opposition, not only Metatron but herself. That would have been so much more interesting. It wouldn't just have been Lyra against the Magisterium, who are these, like, faceless priests who, like, you know, are, like, cool with murder and, you know, there's some, like, weird <laughs> pedophilic undertones. It would be, like, her mom. <laughs> that would have been so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the analogy that I have in my head, it's, like, the way this book is structured or this series really is structured because we don't get any faces to the antagonists until the third book, either with the Magisterium or the Kingdom of Heaven. We see very, very briefly maybe an agent of the Magisterium and I guess Mrs. Coulter, but she's not really an agent of the... What this book feels like, it's like if you had the Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy, and you didn't introduce Darth Vader until the third movie. And it's like, who the f*** is this person? Why should I care he, he's redeeming himself? That's actually a great example because it's literally the dad is the force of the dark side. Very, thanks, Casey. That was a much better example than mine. That was perfect. That's perfect. That is exactly what I want. I want Star Wars. Indeed. I love Star Wars! You hamstring yourself by not having the villains presented early on. Clearly established and allowing some kind of connections to form. Otherwise, they're just fighting off against this faceless horde, which doesn't even really seem like a threat. The thing is, it's so funny that the book ends back at Jordan College because there really is a feel that Lyra's life has not changed at all. Like, she was in no danger before from the Magisterium. We never really saw the Magisterium as a threat. And... I guess they've been handled off screen, so they're not a threat now. It's it's just like this feeling that nothing has really changed. And that's sort of, I was thinking about this book in context of Things Fall Apart, which also casts Christians as a primary antagonist of the book. But where that, where Things Fall Apart feels so concrete, because it's talking about actual consequences, potential consequences against this culture for the Christians being around. 
you get to this book and you just you don't get that same feeling. And what it is, is that Pullman is in no danger from the church. He, as a white man, would face the least amount of threat from the church. And he and he currently faces the least amount of threats. And you get that vague sense that Pullman is just annoyed with the church. And he's expressing that annoyance in this book. But there's no actual threat to him from the church. So he can't really make that threat concrete in this book in a way that's really meaningful outside of these cartoonish depictions that all priests are pedophiles. It's just comical how the Magisterium is depicted because they're just, they're assassins or they're pedophiles or presumably they're both. And that's where you get the sense that like Pullman has never had to grapple with what it means to be a victim of church policy, uh, whether that church policy is just within the church or church policy being imposed upon the state, he's never had to deal with that. So when they're presented as a threat, it's absurd and it's impossible to take seriously. And that's not to say that like you have to experience that personally in order to write it into a book. No, of course not. But I do think in this one case, Pullman's lack of concrete experience with that has made the villains really, really <laughs> shitty in this book. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but I do want to hear you talk about the Stacy Mom's vibes, the knife. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be great, and I'm very excited. It's all very Freudian. Oh, this is so good. But like literally, okay, so what happens is he meets Mrs. Coulter and they have a little convo. And then after that, he's like, wow, everything is Mrs. Coulter centric now, I guess. I just want to see her again. It's very much like, yeah, given that the vibes of like, this is a boy transitioning from being a child and being attached to the mother and being a man interested in women mm -hmm. and replacing the mother figure with a sexual partner and this is literally i think canon because <laughs> so he sees mrs coulter again thinks about his mom like the association is there like mrs coulter reminds him of his mom he breaks the knife this is very phallic <laughs> his penis breaks oh i love it <laughs> <laughs> yep then, but they reforged the knife. He's, like, literally told he has to put his mom out of his mind to continue to be able to, like, function. <laughs> so he does so. But then the whole thing with Lyra happens. They bang. They save the universe. They told they must separate. And then he has to break the knife. So when he goes to break the knife, he tries to think of his mom again. But he's like, it doesn't work anymore. And then it's like, it's, I forget who tells him. He's like, think of Lyra. It's his demon. Like, oh, of course. It's his demon. He's like, ah, of course. So then he thinks of Lyra and is able to break the knife. <laughs> and it is literally like a maturity in Philip Pullman's mind. Growing up means replacing the mother figure with the sex figure. Oh, my God. And therefore, the two become slightly conflated in Will's transition period in the form of Mrs. Coulter. And she helps serve as the bridge 
because he's like, is this what Lyra will look like when she's grown up? But she's also associated <laughs> with his mom. So it is literally like she is the bridge between him having the mother figure and having the sex figure of Lyra. Like, and it is so weird, uncomfortable. Like you said, weird. Like he breaks his penis <laughs> metaphorically. What is so funny, too, because by the end, the allegory of the demons as genitalia is so strong. There's literally a scene where both characters are stroking the other's demons. And the way it's described, it's like Lyra grips Will's demon tightly. And it, and it's just like, oh, Phil, you had to go and so you have that scene. You got to extend the metaphor, right? If Will's demon is his penis and he's saying you have to think about Lyra to break the knife. It's like his penis telling his penis to break itself. <laughs> but it's like his romantic penis telling his sexual penis. But Philip <laughs> conflates the two. But then... His mom just doesn't do it for Will anymore, I guess. So he has to move on. So he starts to move on to Mrs. Coulter, who is a babe. And then he thinks about how Lyra is going to be that banging. And it's just, huh. It's very Freudian. It's very uncomfortable. I have to. Did, <laughs> did Philip do that on purpose? He can't have done that on purpose. The Freudian bit. Yeah. Or the multiple dick metaphors bit. I guess both. And he did all of it on purpose. That was all intentional. Like, there's some things in this series I'm like, I don't think he did that intentionally. That is 100% intentional. The, like, mom to sex object transition. So clear and ed evident that, like, that is so intentional. There are things in books where I'll be like, I don't think the author understood what they were doing here. But those parts of this book, uh-uh, no. I was like, that is, that is so elementary. Uh, that is. I guess it would work with his theme of growing up, right? That you yes. go from the mom to the sexual partner. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and say that he did not think through all of the implications of what he was writing there. I know you think differently. And actually, you I know think what? He thinks Freud I'm, is I'm just right. Gonna, I'm going to side with you because I hate Philip Pullman. So, yeah. There is this other thing that made me laugh where, because I was just thinking how my reaction to this series is so different from my childhood to adulthood, which in a way feels appropriate given what the book is saying. But. There is, I had this thought of like, no adult in their right mind would buy any of this bullshit being peddled in this book. And then I realized, no, Philip had to go after the children. He had to prey on their gullibility and take advantage of children because children don't know any better. Okay, no, we're we're going too far. <laughs> With, I'm sorry, the, the the metaphor you were making right there. There is a feeling. I get what you're saying, but. <laughs> joking aside, I do think there is a, a huge, huge layer of hypocrisy here because. Yes. If 
Philip is criticizing the church or the Chronicles of Narnia or Christianity as a whole for taking advantage of people's gullibility. In his own way, he's doing the same thing here. I Speaking from personal experience, children aren't able to think through the nuances, think through the implications of what he's saying here. And they'll be inclined to just accept it because it's it's coming off as this very pro-children kind of book. And I would argue that it's not. I think this book is oh, it's really anti-children. Yeah, it's really which is astonishing that these books are in the same series as The Golden Compass because because that book is just so much more respectful of children. And then you get to these books and it's basically just slamming you over the head with how Philip Pullman thinks kids are stupid. And it's <laughs> remarkable how daft the logic is in here. I'm sorry, this is rambling now, but like we've brought it up multiple times now how Mary Malone left the church because she wanted to have sex. That's stupid. Obviously, you can't be a nun and have sex, so maybe she leaves the nunnery, but to leave the church to abandon the re religion wholeheartedly because you're horny? The church isn't saying you can't have sex, period. It's just saying you can't, like, you shouldn't have sex before marriage. Well, and you shouldn't as a nun, but yeah. For, forget the nun bit, okay? Let's remove that yeah. completely from the equation. What has happened here is that Mary has left the church and has become an atheist because she has interpreted the church as saying you are not allowed to enjoy sex. Which, you know what? There are some factions, I guess, that that would say that they're dumb. There are plenty. This is where it kills me because it feels like Philip Pullman has not read his Bible because if he has read his Bible, he would have read the song of Solomon or the song of songs, depending on who you ask. He would have read all these parts of the Bible that are really pro sex, sex positive in a lot of different ways. He's doing this thing where he's trying to cast the church as saying like, oh, all sensation is bad. All pleasure is bad. But that's not true. It's just not true. <laughs> it's just not true. And he does himself yeah. a disservice and he does his message a disservice by tr playing with this straw man. Well, and I <sighs> I want to like go even further into this. Um, So I like pulled up the the text. But it's it's not even just like the sex and pleasure bit because okay so she's flirting with this guy over dinner and realizing that she's enjoying that and like she says uh, sister Mary Malone flirting what about my vows what about dedicating my life to Jesus and all that well I don't know if it was the wine or my own silliness or the warm air or the lemon tree or whatever but it gradually seemed to me that I'd made myself believe something that wasn't true. I'd made myself believe that I was fine and happy and fulfilled on my own without the love of anyone else. Hmm. So it is not just sex and sexual pleasure, but it is by being banned from having sex and sexual pleasure. She says that, that she is being banned from having the love of anyone else. And like, I'm sorry, that is so offensive to me. 
the idea that like in order to have a kind of lifelong love or bond or whatever that you have to be having sex with them like that's such a toxic idea like especially in a nunnery where like one of the great things about nunneries is that the nuns there (laughs) if it's a good nunnery the nuns there are really a sisterhood they're really there to take care of each other and have this community with each other for the rest of their lives that's cool like i'm really happy for people who find fulfillment in that you get to hang out with Whoopi Goldberg. Have, I mean, that's great. Yeah, you get to just like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Obviously, there are people that like that's not the case for. But like a lot of nuns, that's really something important is having this. Yes, potentially like, well, not potentially this deep non-sexual bond with other women that they have for their entire life and and so it's just like really offensive that like one sec i want to just go a little bit further on and so she talks this makes her recall her memory about having kissed her the first boy she kissed and like the rush of having that first crush that first love and she says and i thought am i really going to spend the rest of my life without ever feeling that again like i want that feeling it's full of treasures and strangeness and mystery and joy I thought, will anyone be better off if I go straight back to the hotel and say my prayers and confess to the priest and promise to never fall into temptation again? Will anyone be the better for making me miserable? And, like, that part's a little more, like, okay. She feels like her work isn't, doesn't have any worth. Being a nun isn't giving her worth or fulfillment. But it's, again, offensive that, like, the idea that she is having this discovery because she likes flirting with this guy and Mm -hmm. wants to have sex with him. But yeah, so the answer came back, no, no one will. There's no one to fret, no one to condemn, no one to bless me for being a good girl, no one to punish me for being wicked. Heaven was empty. I didn't know whether God had died or whether then there had never been a God at all. Either way, I felt free and lonely, and I didn't know whether I was happy or unhappy. But yeah, she decides God is dead because she flirted with some man and liked it. Like, the chain of events... (laughs) is so offensive it's so patronizing and offensive i'm not saying that like an inconsequential moment can't have someone totally change their mind or their religion or anything but again within the broader context of this book how other female characters are dealt with how sex is dealt with in this book i think it's just hugely problematic yeah it's to me it's so clear what pullman's trying to do he's trying to say that the church is so vain and trivial that they would look at Mary flirting and say, that's bad, you're going to go to hell, you need to repent, you shouldn't do that. But what it actually comes across is like you're saying, Mary gives up God because of a man, because of sex with a man. Because that man's dick is just that good. And it's just like frustrating. It's so trivializing in a way that because religion is such a potent thing. And I use that word very intentionally. And it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. And it's something that's extremely, extremely personal. For some, yes, it's that spiritual connection. For some, it might be the sense of community 
right? Which we don't see that <laughs> at all in this book. And I think that's a good point you bring up about like the nunnery of, of this sisterhood. And I would say it's the same way on the other side. There's a brotherhood. It's the idea. And because you know, you know that Philip Pullman is one of those people that probably thinks men and women can't be friends because they'll always be thinking about sex. It just trivializes the human connection. And that's actually fitting in a way, I guess, with this series, because we constantly see the books trivializing the friendship, quote unquote, between Lyra and Roger. Lyra is constantly Poor forgetting Roger. about Roger. Poor Roger. <laughs> but that's the thing. That kind of friendship, a real friendship like that. And that's where it gets destructive, because then going back to your idea of the men transitioning from the mom to the lover. The danger in that is that then the lover becomes your mom and men are then yeah. trained to look to women to look specifically to their lover for that kind of emotional support that they got from their mom rather than looking to other men because real men don't hug fucking bullshit. I'm angrier than ever and I don't know why. But assuming that a man can only get emotional support from a woman. That is undercut by the fact that you're saying men and women can't be friends. So then you are limited to one woman in your life. Who is your lover? Who has her own needs? But that becomes secondary to the men having that emotional support. It's just a mess. The way friendship is described in this series the way sex is described in this series and it really just feels like pullman has gone in a past because these things are kind of edgy to talk about in a book aimed for kids you're not supposed to talk about sex in a book for kids you're not supposed to say god is dead in a book for kids so it's like whoa philip pullman he's so edgy <sighs> we've been tricked people he is a hack, a fraud, a charlatan. We should not listen to this person because his ideas, they are just as toxic, if not more so, than C.S. Lewis's. In part, like I said before, because Pullman is trying to pass them off as progressive, as liberal. You shouldn't listen to the church. Just have a bunch of sex and you'll be good. But also... If you enjoy the sex a little bit too much, girls, if you try to use your sexuality a little bit too much, girls, you're going into the abyss. But boys, if a witch comes along and says, hey, let's bang, go for it, buddy. Way to go. High five. Oh, fuck. I just want to metaphorically strangle Pullman. I, I was about to make a death threat. I'm like, huh, I probably shouldn't do that on a podcast. <laughs> but Pullman is killing me here yeah i mean i think that i don't want to discount because that these books were important to me from a standpoint of i find less value in the sex bits although again like yay sex positivity although again i think he takes it too far but i think the value i found was in saying oh you can question mm -hmm. authority you know, like, the, these books are very bold about saying, 
they set up an initial church system that is reminiscent of our own, and then slowly we find out things aren't as they seem, and that can be important for a young person to read, to see that deconstruction of a religious authority and be told that we can question these things. Do I think it does it very well? No. <laughs> I I would like another series to come along for the youth that perhaps does a better job. I actually think um this is going to be a really kind of strange recommendation mm. and I don't fully endorse this, but Brandon Sanderson's uh Mistborn series, the first the first trilogy in his Mistborn series. Brandon Sanderson is a fantasy writer. He writes for mostly adults, but he does have some middle grade um, and YA series. And Mistborn kind of could be read by a mature teenager. And it's funny, he's Mormon, very open about being Mormon. But he has a character in the first Mistborn series who's very religious and ends up going on a religious journey in which he does, he discovers things about his own religion that make him question things. And make him lose faith for a while and make him like he goes on a big religious journey that I think ultimately for me like I could tell it was written by a religious person but I think it could be helpful for religious people who are questioning their faith because I think that regardless of what conclusion the character comes through going on that journey with that character might make you feel more comfortable about questioning things and and thinking about things I mean I really appreciated that an author who is very open about his religion was willing to do that and was willing to show that certain elements of the religion were wrong. There's actually, <laughs> what if his other series has another situation where like a very religious culture suddenly finds out elements of their religion are wrong and they have to tackle that. So I, there's, it is clearly a fascination for him. And I think it's really interesting coming from a Mormon author for various reasons, but there, there's value in, in that as a, as a plot. And I think there's value in, in this series saying, actually, it was all a lie. Actually, the authority was just the first angel and he didn't create anything and there was no God. And putting that situation out there into the universe for someone to read and maybe it makes them think more critically about their own beliefs and whether that strengthens them or leads them in another direction, that's great. But as we've discussed, it's just not super well done and I wish it was better. Because I, I do think that the reason this has so much acclaim, and I, to be fair, this last book came out in 2000. So this was a late 90s series, really. Yeah. And we have progressed a lot since then. But I think the reason this was hailed and continues to be hailed is because it was, yeah, bringing those questions to children's literature. And I just think we've had enough time now. It's been over 20 years. I think we can have a new series that's maybe asking you know, similar questions, but doing it better. Mm. It puts me in mind of a, of a Bible quote. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And I think this is a book series that we can do away with now. I think you're, you're a lot more forgiving, a lot more generous than me. In crediting this book, I I look at the series and I think, who is this benefiting? Who is going to read this and 
come to a place where they will be willing to change their minds. When you have Mary Malone literally <laughs> saying Christianity is a mistake, you've instantly turned away the audience that, that you're supposed to be re like reaching out to. I can be more forgiving because it did help me on my atheist journey. So I can say that it did actually have an impact. But that's that's what I mean. And I think it's it's different now than maybe it was, you know, even when I was growing up, obviously I was not reading this in 2000. I was reading it in like 2007. But like, you didn't talk about atheism. I hadn't heard really. I mean, I knew it existed, but I didn't. It was not conceptually there for me. And, and my family wasn't even that religious. And I mean, maybe that's the real thing is that I was... My family was so nominally Christian that this was helpful in a way that maybe it wouldn't be for someone who was more, like, actually Christian. But yeah, I was like, whoa, this guy is out there publishing this really popular series of books saying God is dead. It just let, it gave me, it feels like almost permission to think things that I had been not allowing myself to think about that I thought were really taboo and I wasn't allowed to think about. And the sex bits of this book are just, we're so not what I picked up on, which is very me. Um, <laughs> but like uh -huh. the bits about showing that the church can be this very toxic system. And again, I was not in a church system, so that's not. But showing that like, just because you were being told this story didn't mean it was true and, and giving me permission to yeah, question things. So I can afford to be generous because I do think of this series as something that fundamentally helped me so i see the value in it in that way but i i i agree we need a new one we can be done with this series we someone else please write a series that is for children that <laughs> that is an atheist series for children we deserve an atheist series for children that is not this series i it's interesting hearing your journey because i mean when i started reading this book i i was on the outs with my own church. I won't get too much into it, but the church I was going to was participating in toxic things. This was around like uh, when Prop 8 was a thing in California, the mm. anti-gay marriage proposition. And I remember coming out of church one day and seeing a booth had been set up that was a pro Prop 8, which was against gay marriage i was uncomfortable with that and i didn't have the words to describe why i was uncomfortable with that now i do now i realize it's just like why are you butting into this what does this have to do with you why do you care about this what are you doing with this all those sort of questions and then there were other things more personal things too not directly for me, but other people in my youth group that I saw the way the church reacted to them. I'm like, that is gross. That is disgusting. That is antithetical to everything that you've been telling me that is Christian. So I had like a, a hard cut away from the church. And now that I'm older and hopefully more wiser and understand that Religion is just a way of seeing the world. It's a way of interacting with the world. It's a medium like anything else, like science, like literature, like anything. 
It's a way of trying to understand the world. It's a way of building connections to the world, to the people around you. Religion can be used for bad sh There's no doubt about that. But I've, I've lived with Jewish roommates for almost a decade, and I've seen the impact that religion has on their lives and what it means for them. And you have a book here saying that religion has no value. Pullman might not believe that, but that's what these books are saying, that religion has no values. It's a mistake. And I hate that because the, the, the final message of this book is that we should try to craft a world that allows people to question, to grow wiser, to be more patient, more kind, more loving. And this book does not do that. It's completely hypocritical, and I hate it. I'm sorry that, like, I've been so negative in this episode, but I, the book is trying to cast itself as progressive when really it's not. It's as reactionary as the people it's criticizing. Yes, I mean, I think that I'm not someone who is always like, well, I guess I am. <laughs> Generally, if you are super extreme on either side of the spectrum, you're wrong. There are cases where that's not true and you can be on one extreme side and that is the correct side to be on. But like, a happy medium is oftentimes the best answer. And this is very much the extreme of one side. Like I said, I think that there are not for children, but there there are for adult fantasy fans or even YA fantasy fans. Mm -hmm. There are now, you know, some books out there that are that are willing to question religion and and even, you know, I think it helps if the religion is slightly less um one to one with yeah. like real life religions because then it gives you the space to see the parallels but not see it as an attack on your own culture, religion, etc. And again, to be fair, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, the Catholic Church has historically done a lot of shitty things. Yeah. And um, continues to still do some shitty things. And it should be called out for that. But the way in which Phil does it lacks nuance, lacks understanding, lacks <laughs> any kind of empathy. And even like, Okay, I, I don't want us to go on too long on this, but, like, talked about, like, how Mrs. Coulter using her sexuality is treated. And, like, we are given multiple hints throughout the books that, like, part of the reason she does this is because this is the only way she can get power mm -hmm. as a woman within this patriarchal male system. But, like, does Phil ever really truly engage with that as one of the big issues of the church system? No, he just kind of drops some, some lines here and there and is like, cool, handled. And I'm like... <sighs> <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's all about like when he is actually depicting the magisterium, it's like they're people that slice kids' demons away. They're people that are willing to do preemptive penance so they can murder people if they need to. And they're going to send this man to go off and kill this 12, 13 year old girl. They are people that have pedophiles in their midst and are okay with that, apparently. And it's very. 
extreme, whereas, like, I think it could have been, I mean, the real issues of organized religion, that they don't allow for a diversity of opinion, that they are exclusionary to certain kinds of people. Even if you wanted to make some commentary on pedophilia and the Catholic Church, I think showing it more as in, like, less like, ah, this is what everyone's doing, and more like what the Catholic Church historically has been, which is not, which is that the thing that is the worst about it is not only are there, yes, people in the system that do this, but, like, that they are willing to, as an organization, suppress and not punish those people, even if they're given reports of that, and that upholding the face of the Catholic Church and the reputation is more important than actually punishing people who do horrible things. So, like, he really could have gone into it with more nuance, but he, he didn't. And, um, yeah, I do think that that's, that's damaging. And then it comes up just as an attack, an attack against the church that feels, even though it has some grounds, it feels less valid because it feels so malicious. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I'm a Christian. I am now. sad though because we were <laughs> looking forward I know. to this. We've been looking forward to it since Chronicles of Narnia. But I've got to say, like with the exclusion of the horrible racism, yeah, in Chronicles of Narnia, and they are horribly racist. So maybe that just makes it all equally bad. And there are a lot of other things. I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia have their issues. <laughs> I don't know if I'm willing to say the Chronicles of Narnia are better than this series. I, I'm going to say this series I don't believe is better than the Chronicles of Narnia. No. I'll say that. I think that they are they are leaving, living at equal but different types of badness. Yeah. Looking back on the Chronicles of Narnia, I, I just think, was there a book in this series, in the His Dark Materials series, that reached the peak of The Magician's Nephew? And... The Golden Compass maybe came close. You could argue for that. But for me, it's not close. And for me, I would read Voyage of the Dawn Treader again over any book in this series. I guess a last note that's a bit more comical, a bit more light. Wait. What? Before we do that, did you want to talk about the Mufala and... Race issues? Right, yeah. Since we just brought up race with Chronicles of Narnia. Fair enough. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, I'll be very quick. I don't think it's too much, but the Malefa are described as this primitive, practical-minded, very nature-conscious. They're described as the caretakers of the Earth. And for me, a lot of the language felt very much falling under that kind of, like, trope of the native who is primitive but has this special connection to the earth despite their primitiveness and they are wiser because of their primitiveness like this is obviously just me as an american reading it comes off as like this is the same kind of language that we've used to describe native americans as these kind of idealized figures that are part of the earth and they have that special connection and they're just so much wiser and everything and so much more magical because of that and uh, it just made me uncomfortable but like i said way back i think that was that was not intentional i don't think pullman was trying to racially code anything it just 
unfortunately read that way for me personally. I mean, I agree. I think that to kind of uh, back up your point, and I agree that I don't think Philip Pullman knew he was doing this. Like, I, I'm the Freud, yes, this, no. Yeah. But obviously the Mufala and their land is supposed to seem very Edenic. There's a reason why it's there that, you know, Lyra is tempted and metaphorically eats the apple and falls. It's a recreation of Eden. And, um, oh, I'm going to mix up some philosopher names here. I think it's Locke. Uh-huh. I think it's John Locke. But, like, came up with the idea of the state of nature, which is, like, the identic state that, like, human beings used to live in and very much saw America as mm. a land that was this very identic state of nature land. So I think that there's definitely, you know, Mufala as a indigenous-type culture. I mean, they literally have this whole thing where they're like, now that you can see the dust, we must tell you that we are waiting for you to figure out what to do because <laughs> we don't know. Um, and, like, it is hard because, like, Mary comes in and she has just different tools available to her. I mean, she has hands and can just do things differently than them. So she is bringing in an outside perspective that I think is is helpful because she looks at things a different way. And if you're trying to solve a problem, having a different perspective can be helpful. But that doesn't erase the fact that it's like, yes, a white British lady comes into indigenous coded land and they're like, we can't figure out how to fix the problems of our own land. And we're going to ask you to take care of it. Yeah. So it is very white safety. <laughs> yeah. And then two, two white children. Well, yeah. In the in the book, white children come in and, and bang on their land and fix everything. So there you go. I'm excited for when Philip Pullman's 100th, what would be his 100th birthday or whatever, when somebody will write an essay calling him a piece of <laughs> But uh, <laughs> the the light thing I wanted to close on is when Will and Lyra first get to that Edenic uh, world of the Malefa, the, g- g- I'm going to mispronounce this, Galivespians, Galivespians? They they have died, and they uh, Will and Lyra have buried them, and we have a scene where Will is writing their names on a, a makeshift tombstone. But when I read that, I was thinking, how the f- does he know how to spell their names? Let's spell their names. They've got weird names. They have weird names. Their names are Tialis. And Salmachia. And listener, give it a shot. You spell those names, and I'll tell you if you spelled them correctly. You're wrong. You spelled it wrong. Their names are spelled T-I-A-L-Y-S and S-A-L-M-A-K-I-A. So I'm just imagining in my head, there's some tombstone on some random world that has two badly misspelled names on it <laughs> it's uh it made me laugh oh man i'm sorry i think the funniest thing is still i will never get over well being like i can only talk to york byronson and then she was like i am york byronson was like i know i'm sorry it's so good it's so funny it reads like a really like cheesy james bond movie <laughs> That's what it reads like. Will thinks he's James Bond. Do I make you horny? I know this is irresponsible to do and you called me out the last time, 
But I do think that Will is kind of a stand-in for Pullman. Will is just too fucking cool. I don't, I don't see that. I'm just not sure. He doesn't really have any Phil characteristics. Like, he's not like a writer. Well, he is also... <laughs> Normally, you notice there being, like, similarities, you know? Right. Well, he is also 12 years old, but whatever. I... <laughs> Could be a writer at 12. Uh... You can definitely... I will say I don't think he's, like, a author stand and he doesn't read like that to me, but I do think that Philip Pullman thinks he's really cool. Yeah. I think he's a Gary Sue. Have you heard about Mary Sue's and Gary Sue's? I know about Mary Sue's, but this is the first time I've heard of a Gary Sue. But for our listeners, I suppose, I think who don't know. Technically, Gary Stew, maybe. I don't remember. But yeah, the basic idea is a Mary Sue. It, of course, started with a female version of this because sexism. But a Mary Sue is a female character that is so awesome and perfect and special, does nothing wrong, and is kind of relatively bland. Um, but like, it's very much... It's clear the author is like, you are the most special, amazing, amazing character in the universe. Everyone must love you. <laughs> and so, I mean, Bella normally gets a rap as being a Mary Sue. I think the more common person that gets that moniker is Rey from the new Star Wars movies. Uh, she is Yeah, but I don't want to attack anyone. Yeah. I know. But mm, that makes me so mad. I know, but that's the popular culture one. Will is definitely a Gary Stew, and it's it's lame. I know we're trying to wrap up here and not be more negative, <laughs> but it is frustrating that Will is cast in the first book or the first book he appears in, which is the second book. But it's basically the first book because does Lyra even exist before he gets there? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> and um, he's cast as this like very fragile shy anxious nervous child who's really unsure of himself in a lot of different ways and by the end of the book he's basically a mini asriel which is also interesting getting into the kind of uh the father-daughter sexual yes. dynamics there too that uh lyra is basically yes. her own dad which is just like why are you doing this pullman why um yeah, I maintain that if this book had been, or this series had been about, really about Lyra, Mrs. Coulter, and Lord Azrael, it would have been a much better series. Yeah. Just leave Will out of it entirely, honestly. I mean, he could have showed up, but just not been a, like, the mainest character. Sure. You know what could have definitely been cut from this entire series? What? The bears. Yes! York is literally just there to fix the knife. Everything to do with the bears all exists so that Yorick can fix that knife. Well, the real reason the bears exist is so you could have made that incredible bear pun in the very first episode for the first book. It's all worth it. <laughs> the Gillespians totally could have been cut. Have we talked about them? Not at all. Not really. So much could have been cut. Really, honestly, the spec. I mean, I guess we needed the specters to like have a reason why Will can't cut windows, yeah. but... The, the, the second uh, book entirely could have been cut. Yeah. Like maybe not to say there are parts in there that could have been added to the the first and third book. Fuck. 
I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't even like I thought about trying to be like, OK, let's like really walk through the like mysteries of this and like, OK, so the subtle knife was invented 300 years ago and that's doing this with the dust and that's but, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to try and like understand a mythology that feels like invented on the spot. Yeah. So let's not. Uh, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta choose something that's more as a good read for the next the next go round. Agreed. We need to pick something that brings joy, sparks joy. Well, I certainly will be throwing. Well, I, I guess I can't be throwing away. I borrowed these books from somebody else, so I can't throw them away. <laughs> uh, so speaking of books, have you been considering buying books, listener? <laughs> 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 Not this series. Not this series. But other books. You know, go to our bookshop affiliate link. Bookshop.org slash shop slash reread podcast. <laughs> it supports us. And that's very nice. Yeah. But, and it doesn't support Amazon. You support uh, small, local, Even more important. independent bookstores. Okay. I Goodbye. <laughs> 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 Thanks for listening. Like, comment, and subscribe. Sorry, we were a little negative Nancy's. Oh, whatever. It happens. Until next time. Hasta la vista. Bye bye.